animal agriculture stands alone. No other sector is so important to climate change and yet so under-discussed by politicians and media. About a third of planet warming emissions come from our food systems, and meat and dairy production is by far the biggest offender. In this six-part miniseries, we take a closer look at how meat shapes our society, our climate, and even our geopolitics. We explore stories from around the world, from a farmer's revolt in the Netherlands, to the giant hog farms of North Carolina, to cattle laundering in the Amazon rainforest. From the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, I'm Hewan Park. And I'm Noah Gordon. And this is Barbecue Earth. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. This program is often full of bad news, so I thought I'd highlight something a little bit more positive. Taiwan had its elections a couple of weeks ago. This was a vote that many experts were dreading. Lai Ching-te, the Democratic Progressive Party's candidate, is seen by China as a separatist who would push for Taiwan's independence. If he won, then Beijing could respond with belligerence, which in turn would spark yet more U.S.-China tensions. Well, Lai did win. But Beijing's response was actually relatively muted. It wasn't pleased, to be clear. But karma heads prevailed all round. Lai has been saying that there's no need for Taiwan to declare independence because it is effectively a sovereign state. And Washington and Beijing's recent diplomatic advances seem to have worked in that neither side overreacted to the other's words. The question is whether that can last. What is the trajectory of the U.S.-China relationship in a year when America heads to the polls and Democrats and Republicans alike up the ante on bombastic rhetoric? Well, my guest this week is Raja Krishnamurthy. He's the Democratic congressman from Illinois' 8th district. More to the point here, he serves as the ranking member of the bipartisan House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, which was created to deal with one of America's foremost foreign policy challenges, competition with China. Krishnamurthy also happens to be the first South Asian American to lead a congressional committee. As always, if you like the podcast, rate us, share it with a friend, or try us on video on foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to ask questions too. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. All right, let's dive in. Congressman, thanks for coming on. Hey, thank you so much, Ravi. Great to be on with you. Likewise. So let's begin with the election results. It's now been more than a week. What are your takeaways? Well, first of all, congratulations to the people of Taiwan for holding successful elections. Uh, I think that there's a consensus at the foreign policy level in Taiwan that they uh, enjoy their autonomy. Uh, they don't want to move toward independence. At the same time, they're not going to capitulate to aggression by the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. And so I think that really a lot of the decision making by individual voters was done based on domestic politics, and we can talk about that. But I think uh, all three of the candidates agreed on some of the major tenets with regard to policy toward China and the United States. And in that regard, we would have been pleased if any of them were elected. So, but Lai is the first candidate to win Taiwan's presidency without 
a majority share of the vote in about 24 years. Does that worry you? No, I, I think that he will work uh, effectively with his counterparts in the TPP as well as the KMT. As you know, in the legislative yuan, a majority of the seats uh, lie with KMT and TPP. And it'll be interesting to see, of course, how those swing votes, those eight swing votes controlled by uh, the TPP lead to interesting coalitions on different domestic issues. But um, I'm not concerned about his not having a majority of the yuan. Now, so far, China has not launched any massive military exercises around Taiwan as it has during past times of tension. And as I think some uh, commentators expected in the worst case scenario, why do you think that's the case? I think it is because of their economic problems at home. I think that they perhaps feel that any kind of further military aggression uh, would probably make both investors inside and outside of China more nervous. And I think right now they're trying to calm jittery nerves. I also think, quite frankly, their massive disinformation campaign in the lead up to the uh, elections, their repeated attempts to interfere in those elections may have backfired a little bit in that Mr. Lai was elected and he was far from their favorite candidate. Let me just push you on that a little bit, because, I mean, this is the year of elections around the world. More people will vote in 2024 than in any year in the history of the world. And many of us who watch these things are thinking a lot about myths and disinformation and how that can be deployed. In this particular case, since Taiwan was, in a sense, the first big test case um, of elections this year, um, other than maybe Bangladesh, is it your sense that Beijing didn't try as much this time to launch cyber attacks on Taiwan? Or was Taipei just that much better prepared? I think it's more of the latter. I think that they launched massive disinformation campaigns online. We actually had a hearing uh, about a month and a half ago called Discourse Warfare. And in that, we featured some of the testimony as well as other evidence of China's launching of social media campaigns in Taiwan to get the Taiwanese people to try to not vote for Mr. Lai, but for other parties. I think that they went all in, so to speak, on trying to interfere in the elections, and it backfired. It didn't go the way that they expected or hoped. Are there any lessons um, from this for other countries that will head to the polls in 2024, including the United States? Yeah, my own election is this year, so I... I <laughs> Uh, it's going to be uh, top of mind for me. And, you know, basically, I think that, you know, one of the lessons that I took away from what happened in Taiwan is that I think, first of all, we have to be vigilant about the threat from the CCP. And then secondly, there has to be an effort, a continued effort, just as there was in 2020, on the part of big tech and the social media platforms to remove false content, to remove content that would otherwise be prohibited under their terms of service and content that is blatantly on the part of, you know, other adversarial regimes or actors that seek to disrupt or sow chaos in our elections. A few months ago, the Select China Committee, which you helped run, of course, published uh, 10 policy recommendations to preserve peace in the Taiwan Straits. But let me ask you this. Why exactly does Taiwan matter so much to the United States? How do you explain the case to people in parts of America who don't know much about Taiwan? Why should they care? Well, I think that this is um, perhaps one of those 
issues that is deeply tied to Americans' underlying fear of conflict with China. You know, in a recent poll, some 80% of Americans thought that an open conflict with China is possible within the next five to 10 years. And that cut across all parties, uh, including independent voters. And um, I think one of the reasons why they fear that conflict is a fear that China might attack Taiwan. And so the reason for our emphasis on Taiwan, our reason for our focus on them is to prevent or deter conflict, prevent it from happening, whether it's a hot open war or even a cold war of any kind. So it's hard to know, you know, what drives American sentiments on these issues. But what's clear to me is there's bipartisan support in Congress for what you're saying. But many analysts draw a link between Taiwan and Ukraine, and they say that China is watching the war in Europe closely as a test of the West's will to defend a democracy. Why then is there not bipartisan support to the same degree for continuing to support Ukraine? I personally think there's a lot of support among Republicans, but there is unfortunately a growing isolationist wing, especially on the right wing of the Republican Party, that somehow feels some kind of empathy with Vladimir Putin. It's, it's a bizarre situation where sometimes you wonder whose interests are they more in, you know, favoring at this point. And I think that they somehow view that our getting involved in Ukraine is not only counter to their interests as isolationists, but maybe counter to Vladimir Putin's interests. And I, I am very disturbed by that. Well, let me ask you this then, because you and Representative Mike Gallagher, who co-run the Select Committee on China, you're a Democrat, he's a Republican. The two of you have become somewhat of, you know, sort of, poster children for bipartisan support on, you know, a foreign policy issue. And given that, I'm curious why it's so much harder for Democrats to reach across the aisle um, or to convince this far right sort of faction that you're describing to change their views on Putin or Russia. Well, I think that part of it has to do with Donald Trump. I think that Donald Trump has an outsized influence on the way that they think about Ukraine and Russia. It's up to us, however, to convince them uh, in any way we can that this particular conflict is deeply related to how the CCP sees Taiwan. And on that issue with regard to the CCP and China and Taiwan, I do think that they are perhaps a little more concerned. And I think that we have to say to them, look, Xi Jinping is watching how we're going to handle the supplemental appropriations bill. And if we were to somehow shrink from not funding further aid to Ukraine, uh, that would be taken as a sign of weakness and an invitation to aggression by the CCP. So let me come back to that Taiwan report I mentioned. And it begins with saying that the U.S. defense manufacturing base is not postured to quickly produce the long-range missiles and unmanned vehicles in the Indo-Pacific that a crisis in the region would demand. So why is that not changing? Well, it, it has to do with kind of the appropriations calendar or process in Washington, D.C., more than anything else. In Washington, short-term thinking, unfortunately, is kind of the, the norm. And our appropriations calendar reflects that short-term thinking in the sense that we're only able to appropriate for one year at a time. 
And what happens is two things. Sometimes we create new weapons platforms each year, but then don't create the mechanisms or long-term vehicles to supply the armaments or bullets for those proverbial guns. And so you have new guns and not enough bullets oftentimes. And that's a big problem, especially in a situation like Ukraine, where we're running out of artillery, for instance, 155 millimeter artillery shells. I think the second issue is we, quite frankly, need to think hard about what are the types of long range platforms that we are going to need in multiple theaters. And so we need to do some strategic thinking about that before we start to authorize money for the latest and greatest weapons platform, not knowing when it will be ready or whether it would be required you know, for the types of conflicts that we see. I have to say, though, just listening to you, if I were Taiwanese, this doesn't really inspire confidence. Like It sounds <laughs> like I'm not sure I can rely on America. You're not confident in Congress? I don't know what you're talking about, Ravi. <laughs> uh, and the Taiwanese aren't either. And I saw your excellent polling. I think FP ran a poll or featured a poll showing that 60% or greater of Taiwanese voters or people are not confident in the Americans coming to their aid in, in the case of a conflict. You know, part of it has to do with disinformation campaigns from the CCP that often question their reliance or dependence on America in the, in the case of a conflict. And then part of it is just looking at Congress and some, some of the dysfunction that's happening right now, uh, especially around the Ukraine supplemental. I still think that does not mean that although they are very concerned about what's going on with China, that, that somehow they would capitulate to uh, the terms and conditions that the Chinese demand of them, uh, especially with regard to reunification. I, I think it may also spur more self-reliance and you know, perhaps a sense of urgency to take up certain initiatives for getting ready to deter any conflict with China. And again, just to push you a little bit on what, what America can do more of or what Congress can do more of, you know, how do you move the needle on this if faith in Congress to you know, do more and come to Taiwan's aid more is as low as what you're describing it is? How do you change that? I think we have to um, obviously authorize this supplemental package of aid for Ukraine, but also Israel, the Indo-Pacific and other priorities as well. Um, that's the short-term kind of priority that I think will help to assuage concerns in Taiwan and elsewhere. But longer term, I think that we have to continue to form a consensus among Republicans and Democrats with regard to the CCP. And then I think that's partly the job of this committee, this select committee, to explain to the American people, to our colleagues, to others, why this is so important in deterring conflict with China by equipping Taiwan with what it needs to uh, discourage conflict. That's extremely important. You know, now various think tanks and also government agencies run war games, uh, which show that, you know, were China to attack Taiwan, in most, in a majority of cases, uh, China ends up winning, A, and B, that America would most likely run out of weapons quite quickly. Can you confirm that? But also, again, how do you think those games are changing the direction of U.S. policy at all? Well, we had a, um, a simulation on Capitol Hill on a bipartisan basis 
And unfortunately, our, you know, the armaments did run low in our simulation. I think that the way that we have to change this is, again, we have to have multi-year appropriations with regard to those precision-guided armaments, with regard to attritive types of weapon systems, whether they are drones or um, other tactical weapons. I think that we, we fundamentally have to think differently about military appropriations. And that's something, fortunately, that our committee brought up as part of the NDAA, and we did see some progress in that direction. Now, we obviously have uh, two wars that America is quite involved in, in the Middle East and in Ukraine. Uh, and I'm guessing that has a pretty big impact on how America thinks about any other potential conflicts in other parts of the world. Is Washington equipped to deal with so much all at once? I mean, you're asking essentially for a bigger defense budget, for more military capacity, but it almost seems like global events are um, outrunning these demands in terms of, you know, the needs keep growing faster than the supply. We have to be equipped, Ravi. And I think that the one thing that we didn't talk about that we possess that is extremely important with regard to this issue is our partnerships and alliances, whether it's our treaty partnerships uh, with places like Japan and Korea or other arrangements such as with the Quad involving India and Japan and Australia. I think that these types of arrangements are ones that can help us to deal with some of those pressing materiel requirements that you talked about, but also very important for deterrence. This is something that the CCP is deeply, deeply concerned about in their military planning. And I think that it deters the type of conflict that the American people don't want in the Indo-Pacific region. And that's why I think we have to strengthen them and do everything we can to take maximum advantage of them. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations on video and live on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Hey, FP Live listeners, this is Claudia. I work on some of the podcasts here at FP, and I wanted to tell you about another podcast you might like, NPR's Throughline. You can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On each episode, NPR's Throughline takes a story from the news and goes back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you're interested in hearing more insights behind today's news stories, like what's the Supreme Court's shadow docket? Or where's the line between entertainment and reality? You're going to love NPR's Throughline podcast. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. If you're interested in hearing more, you can listen to Throughline from NPR now, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're loving this show, it's clear you value unique perspectives on the issues shaping your world. That's why you should check out The Intelligence, the free award-winning daily news podcast from The Economist. And with a subscription to Economist Podcasts Plus, you can listen to a deep dive weekend edition of The Intelligence, special limited run series, and The Economist's in-depth weekly shows on business, China, American politics, and tech, all for just a few dollars a month. Search online for Economist Podcasts Plus to start listening.
I want to come to something that you hinted at earlier, and that is China's economy. Uh, China's economy has been in some trouble for some time now. We don't have exact data because we never do. But if you just assume that China is slowing down, um, that they are internally worried about the state of their economy, the people are worried. Do you think all of that makes it more or less likely that Beijing will try to attack Taiwan? And I ask you this question because there's a vibrant debate on this with important academics on either side. And I'm curious where you stand on this. I guess that's the uh, trillion renminbi question, Ravi. I think that just to kind of lay it out, on the one hand, as the authors of this recent book, Hal Brands and Michael Beckley, they laid out the scenario that this might be the point where their economic problems coupled with their demographic freefall cause the CCP to feel that this is the maximum opportunity for them to strike before their power wanes over time. Um, on the other hand, there's a school of thought that their economic problems internally will cause them to turn inward, repair their economy, calm nervous uh, investors, and seek to avoid the aggression that we in the West and in America have been very, very concerned about uh, for years now. I don't know exactly which way it turns. I think that we have to hedge our bets. I think on the one hand, if the former school of thought is to be believed, I still think that PLA military planners and Xi Jinping do a cost-benefit analysis every morning. I don't know if they wake up and change their spreadsheet to decide whether today is a day to invade Taiwan. However, we want to make sure that they wake up and say, not today, for many, many years. And the only way to do that is to make sure that Taiwan is equipped with the items necessary for its self-defense to increase the cost of any potential invasion. The second school of thought, however, is more interesting to me because I do think that there is a potential for an alteration of course, as we saw with the zero COVID policy, where on a moment's notice, Xi Jinping basically changed their zero COVID policy when he saw that it was an utter political disaster that at the grassroots people uh, wanted a change. And so he made it. I sense that there's a deep, deep distrust among the Chinese people with its leadership, especially with regard to its economic course. And so to preserve his position atop the CCP and to preserve the CCP's position politically in China, the question is whether they will alter course with regard to their external relations to improve their e internal economic position. I personally think the jury is out, so to speak, but I think that there might be an internal debate within China and we should do everything we can to nudge them in that direction because that's the only way that they're gonna be able to deal with their economic problems. Just one statistic just screams out to me every time I see it, which is the 22% youth unemployment rate in China. If you think about that for one second, if you think about the one child policy in China and the fact that there are two parents and four grandparents who've invested all of their hopes and dreams in one child. And for that one child to be unemployed, potentially, you have six people who are very, very upset in addition to that child. And you can see that spreading throughout the economy and people just being so upset about what's happening. And so 
I personally think that this is a moment where in our economic engagement with them, we continue to press the case that it's in their best interest to lower their economic aggression, their military aggression, to help repair their own economy. For our viewers and listeners around the world, you mentioned uh, Hal Brands and uh, Michael Beckley. Uh, both have been on FP Live. We will link to their uh, essays in the show notes. Both of them obviously originated uh, their theories in foreign policy several years ago. Um, Congressman, late last year, the Select China Committee released a 150-point plan to reset America's economic relationship with China. 150 is a lot, but if you had to list your top three points, what would those be? I would ask your viewers to take a look at the last section of the report, especially in terms of investing in America. This is something that on a bipartisan basis, 24 members supported unanimously. And here are a few of the items that I would bring to your attention. One is fixing our high-skilled immigration system, which is driving away the very talent that we need to win the economic competition with China. Another issue is investing in basic research at NIST uh, and the National Science Foundation, NIH and other places in technologies of the future where unless we invest in basic AI research or basic biotech research in um, semiconductor nanoscale computing and so forth, we're not gonna be able to maintain our innovation for the future. And this is something that is deeply needed. Um, a third issue I would bring to your attention is basically fixing some of our supply chain issues, especially with regard to critical minerals, where we are heavily, heavily reliant on CCP-guided processing of critical minerals for, again, the EV supply chain, electric vehicle supply chain, but also the semiconductor supply chain and others. If we don't fix those things, we're going to continue to be reliant and subject to potential economic coercion by the CCP. Congressman, there's, you know, when you speak to Chinese scholars or, you know, scholars and thinkers around Asia, frankly, a lot of them say that it seems like America wants China to slow down. Is that fair? No, um, I personally uh, haven't had conversations with, you know, my colleagues or others who say, hey, we want China to slow down. We want to put down China. We want to kick China when it's down. I haven't had a conversation like that. What we repeatedly talk about is, you know, we say, look, CCP, you got to stop the aggression. You got to stop the dumping of goods below their cost to drive American businesses um, out of industries. You got to stop the rampant cyber hacking, which affects my constituents every day and which I hear about all the time. You got to stop the intellectual property theft. You know, I was a small businessman before I came to Congress and my own company was the target of attempts to basically steal our intellectual property in the night vision technology business. This is something that's commonly felt. And another area where we haven't talked uh, much about is the human rights abuses. I'm hearing about this all the time with regards to the Uyghur genocide, the crackdown on Tibetan and Hong Kongers. This is something that they've got to stop in order to improve relationships, not just with lawmakers like myself and others, but with the American people. Mm. Now, Congressman, uh, we're going to link to that report in our show notes to make sure um, all of our viewers and listeners can read um, your point of view and the point of view of the Select China Committee. But I want to present to you some pushbacks from uh, <laughs> you know, critics of the report and also you know, generally, I think, other countries. So 
There are many countries, especially those in the global south, that feel that, you know, with America's uh, push to first decouple, now de-risk from China, um, it hurts them because these other countries require Chinese growth. They welcome it. Second, most countries, especially in the global south, they want to hedge their bets. They see America historically as a not always reliable ally. Third, many of these same countries also accuse America of hypocrisy, of inconsistently applying its values, whether it's about democracy or human rights, as you were just describing. And therefore, they aren't quite sure what the true line is. And then finally, all of these countries also worry that domestic U.S. politics will blow up all of the policies, the likes of which you've just been describing. So what do you say to all of that? <laughs> That's quite a laundry list there. Uh, let me start with the first point with regard to their concern about our de-risking or diversifying risk. I think it actually benefits them, right? Because what ends up happening is that a lot of companies, even aside from U.S. government nudging them in, in the direction of diversification, are actually locating some of their manufacturing and some of their supply chains in the, precisely those countries that may be less developed and that could actually benefit uh, from more uh, business or relationships or partnerships with the U.S. Of course, I'd like to also see a lot of that come home to the U.S., including to my congressional district where I'm speaking from. But I think that it does benefit some of these other countries as well. With regard to the last point, um, the concerns about our democratic process here in the U.S., I share some of those concerns, and I think we have to do more to shore up our own democracy here. I think the upcoming elections will be a test of where the American people stand on this issue. But when I knock on doors in my district, and I knocked on thousands of doors in my last election, I constantly heard from both Republicans and Democrats that they want to you know, make sure that our democratic institutions stay strong. They don't wanna relitigate the 2020 elections and they wanna move forward, especially with holding people accountable with regard to January 6th and uh, what happened at the Capitol that day. I think that with regard to your other two points, um, what I can say to these folks is, look, we are not perfect in America. We are not uh, necessarily always achieving the ideals that we aspire to, but we are seeking to move toward them. And we would ask these other countries to move along with us. They may see some parts of the Belt and Road Initiative, for instance, as being attractive to them. But increasingly, a lot of them are not because of the terms and conditions that go along with this debt trap diplomacy that the CCP pursues in these countries where they, they build bridges, then they use Chinese labor, Chinese steel to build those bridges, and then they give a 99-year loan, and then they try to take over those bridges when those countries don't necessarily uh, are able to finance or pay for those bridges. That's not the type of development that I would respectfully think they should seek. That being said, we need to have some other offers on tap to be able to provide alternatives to these countries, to be able to build those bridges, those infrastructure projects, and do what they need to do for their development. One more thing from the report. Um, it describes why America should begin reimposing tariffs on Chinese imports at a wider scale. But tariffs on Chinese goods have been implemented and used as an economic tool since the Trump administration. And I think economists have shown that several of them have backfired. So why double down on something that hasn't quite worked out? I think that what we pointed out is that where 
the CCP uses economic aggression, then there have to be countermeasures to preserve those industries. If we don't put those countermeasures in place, whole industries will go by the wayside. I'll just give you one example. We had a field hearing at Stoughton Trailers, which is a company based in Wisconsin. That company was about to go under when uh, the CCP basically dumped trailer undercarriages. This, these are basically the platforms that uh, you see these containers lie upon when you see these 18 wheelers on our highways. And basically the Chinese were dumping these trailers on the market to steal market share from Stoughton Trailers and other American companies. Stoughton Trailers was about to go under when countermeasures and tariffs were imposed on those Chinese products. Now Stoughton Trailers is back and it realizes that these countermeasures are temporary. They're only gonna be in place for a certain period of time, but it gives them a chance to basically modernize their business model and be ready for the global competition again once those tariffs go down or those countermeasures are repealed. But we have to put those in place if we're going to preserve American industry and jobs. That's what our constituents demand. And um, I think that they are appropriate to an extent. Now, hopefully at some point, the Chinese don't employ those aggressive tactics that they have been employing up to this point, and we can have a more level playing field. But until then, countermeasures are necessary. Um, we've been discussing Taiwan's elections. Um, I have to ask you about America's elections. Um, <laughs> what is your sense of the challenges that might sort of confront the Select China Committee, especially if uh, you have Donald Trump coming back to power? It's a good question. I do think that with regard to China and the CCP, there appears to be a durable consensus on at least one thing, which is that the status quo is unacceptable. We have a pretty robust debate and dialogue within the committee as it is from different people, from different parts of the ideological spectrum, including people who are Trump supporters. I think that will continue regardless of whether Donald Trump is elected. I hope that whoever is elected the next president, that we do three things. One, that we protect American economic interests. Two, that we um, resist technological aggression, including on platforms like TikTok and you know, ByteDance controlled platforms and so forth. And then three, that we invest in America's ability to compete. That is absolutely crucial. If we're not doing that, then we're not gonna be able to um, keep up not only with the CCP, but with many of our other competitors around the world. Congressman, I will end with one detour. You were born in New Delhi. You're a proud South Asian American and supporter of the US-India relationship. And just today, this is uh, uh, Monday, January 22nd, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi inaugurated a giant Hindu temple built on the site of a destroyed mosque. Critics say that this is unabashed majoritarianism, even a blow to secularism in India. But of course, it is very popular nationally. How do you see it? Well, I think that you, you mentioned that there are going to be a lot of elections around the world, and that includes India, uh, the world's largest democracy. And I think election season is on, so to speak, in India. And this is something that will play well with probably a majority of voters. Um, I happen to come from a district that is in incredibly diverse. We perhaps have 
the biggest concentration of both Hindu mandirs and Muslim mosques of any congressional district, certainly in Illinois and maybe in the Midwest, if not elsewhere. And I think that what I tell people here is, look, we have to remember what binds us, which is a common concern about prejudice and bigotry and hatred directed at anybody, whether they're Hindus, Muslims, Jews, or anyone else. And then with regard to India, we have to be concerned about the health of that democracy, just as we are about the one here, uh, as we discussed before. I'm going to continue to air my concerns uh, to my Indian counterparts about what's happening over there, just as I am with my colleagues here. I think we just have to continue to be a voice for a strong secular democracy everywhere, certainly in the competition with the CCP. This is something that is a strength of ours uh, and our partners and friends, and uh, we want it to main stay that way. We'll have to end it there. Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, thank you so much for coming on the program. Hey, thank you so much, Ravi. And that was Raja Krishnamurthy from the Select China Committee in Congress. Next week, Ian Bremmer, the political scientist and founder of the Eurasia Group. We're going to talk about geopolitical risk in 2024. What are the things to worry about? And much more importantly, how do we mitigate risk from all of those things? The podcast version of FP Live is produced by Rosie Julin, and the executive producer of FP Live and Video is Tal Alroy. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I will see you next time.